and welcome to this podcast. I'm Laura Horton. And I'm Michael Bentley. Thank you for joining us, everyone. Today is a second uh, edition of our guest Horton Hangout, and we have a fantastic lady joining us today, Dr. Sarah Jane Dunn, who is based in Ireland. And Sarah Jane is absolutely fantastic. She's such a positive person, so we're sure you're really going to enjoy today's Horton Hangout podcast. Sarah Jane's been uh, in dentistry 20 years, so she's celebrating 20 years being in dentistry this year. And something that's really interesting about Sarah Jane, which we'll definitely discuss today, is that she's transitioned from a clinical role to a non-clinical role mid-career, which is really interesting, and we'll talk more about that. What Michael and I absolutely love about Sarah Jane is that she really believes in embracing the power of systems in dental practice. It you know, really helps to reduce stress. It really helps her to increase productivity and happiness for the whole team and really supports the practice running smoothly as well. So Sarah Jane's really passionate about systems. So you can hear a bit more about that today as well. And what else you need to know about Sarah Jane? Well, she really does believe in building a dental practice that's a profitable business, not just a job where you work for a crazy boss, that crazy boss being yourself. So without no further ado, I'd like to welcome Sarah Jane. Hello, Sarah Jane. Hi, Laura. Hi, Michael. Happy New Year to you both. Oh, happy New Year to you. So so much for having me. Oh, we're really pleased to have you. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy working week to join us today. It's it's going to be my pleasure. It's really is going to be good. So oh, I think we should just get straight into it then. So Sarah Jane, would you be able to tell us a bit about your background, your story and what ha- what's been happening in your dental career? Yeah, absolutely. So um, as you both know, I'm based in Dublin, uh, uh, Dublin born and bred. Um, so I finished school in the 90s, um, 92, and uh, went to Trinity to study dentistry and qualified there in 98. So as you said, uh, 20th anniversary, which is a little bit uh, um, terrifying to think about, but yeah, 20 20 years qualified, um, uh, September gone. So um, so, so, so yeah, it's been... um, a bit of a, an unusual trajectory maybe compared to some of the um, other people who qualified with me but I, we're all different we're all unique so yeah I qualified in 98 and um, the landscape at that time was quite different to now um, and it really was quite usual for a lot of Irish um, grads to go to London or to Kent or to Scotland or to Wales or further afield and uh, cut their teeth so to speak as associates and get a bit of experience before they'd come back and get a job in Ireland um, so that's what I did. So um, I worked in London for four years, uh, really enjoyed it, got loads of experience, um, taught me lots about what I wanted and also lots of what I definitely didn't want. Um, so I worked in two really lovely practices, um, both mixed, predominantly NHS, um, one in um Camden, uh, just outside Kentish Town, which was mostly NHS, but also was right beside the Priory Clinic. I don't know if people remember that from the 90s, where lots of people used to go and go into rehab and stuff, very wealthy people and rock stars and stuff. So we had a really mixed clientele. It was really funny, you know, we'd completely um, mixed clientele with lots of funny stories. Uh, And then I worked in um, Putney for two years after that. 
so that was my sort of cutting my teeth as an associate and uh, what I decided at that point was that there were aspects of dentistry that I loved. I loved dealing with patients. I loved um, helping patients and being part of their sort of life story and, and helping them keep things on straight and narrow and improve their lives. Um, and there were certain things that I really didn't like. Um, for example, aspects of the NHS where you were limited in the options you could offer to patients and so on. Mm -hmm. That really didn't appeal to me at all. So, um, yeah, and then at that point, um, myself and my, my future husband, uh, we were really planning to move back to Ireland and start our own practice. So it really gave me some um, very specific directions about coming back to Ireland and choosing a practice to buy. Um, so that was really, really useful. Oh, fabulous. And the practice that you purchased, was that from a retiring dentist? Correct. Yeah. So we had that sort of dilemma, you know, do we set up from squat or do we buy an existing practice? And we were quite sure we wanted to buy an existing practice and we were quite sure the type of practice that we wanted. So we wanted a practice. So in Ireland, we don't have NHS, but we do have a medical car dentistry, which would be, have some similarities, I suppose, with the NHS um, in specifically in the fact that it's low fee and it's restricted in what you can offer to patients. So we really didn't want that. We didn't okay. want um, sort of third parties, you know, influencing what we felt might be best or options that might be suitable for our patients to discuss. So um, we wanted a private practice um, and we wanted, a, you know, a practice that had a departing dentist who was of, you know, good standing, good dentist, good parts community, a well-known, well-liked and um, a really nice um, sort of village community, but in Dublin. And so we um, found through a colleague of Ray's boss at the time, uh, who was an older Irish dentist, a colleague of his, um, a previous classmate was retiring in Dundrum in South County, Dublin. Um, and Dundrum now is completely different to how it was then, but it was about to have the biggest uh, shopping centre in Europe built and it was about to have the light rail put in and the dentist was retiring and very happy to retire and so we met him and we got on really well met the team got on really well the practice was a great fit and we bought the practice from him um, so he stayed on for about three months um, uh, I had uh, at this point um, I was pregnant on my first child so I needed to produce the child <laughs> once I'd <laughs> produced the child and uh, then got ready to get back to work uh, so that all happened all all around the same time 2001 2002 um, and, wow. we started and, that, and that wasn't unusual then was it either I remember you know working for my dentist Martine and she said you know what you have to pop it out and get back to work that was <laughs> in the paddy fields in China yeah you just pop it out yeah. and get back to work. yeah exactly <laughs> I love yeah, the fact yeah. that introduced you as the two whiz, whiz kids we were we were chatting before and he said that to you and and what a lovely introduction into uh, owning a practice and what I think was really interesting in your first two years you said to us is that you know you you turn the practice from being you know a single dentist owner obviously with you know heaps of um you know experience and patients adored him and he did a nice yeah. handover to you but actually going to two full-time dentists and the introduction of hygienist um, yeah. as well which would have been a brand new concept to Ireland in those days as well I know he actually how had a hygienist he, he was one of the first dentists to have one so um we were and he, he had yeah he was amazing he had he had um he had 
x-rays that he would use on a regular basis and he had a hygienist which were two not very common things in the 80s and 90s in Ireland um so yes and we we built the hygienist book up also from sort of one or two days a week up to five um in those first couple of years as well um so wow. i think that the, the main thing it taught me about um building a practice is that we did no marketing we had no there was no website there was no nothing this is back in the you know sort of um early 2000s and um the all of the potential to build from that dentist working four days a week to us between us working 10 days a week with an additional five days for the hygienist that was all that potential was all there untapped within that patient base because that the dentist fantastic and all as he was had really got to the point where he had sort of plateaued and he really just wanted to coast to retirement and so he really wasn't wanting to talk about big restorative comprehensive plans that were going to take six to 12 months because he knew he was retiring so yeah. all of that potential was within the practice um, and it really didn't take a huge amount um apart from you know conversations and discussions and good examinations. Sarah Jane, um, is that, you know, what was your communication style um, to patients? You know, you're the new whiz kids on the block, as he's called you, and you come in with uh, a, a younger edged dentistry. Did you, how did you approach patients that may feel like you were trying to make money? from patients because you know we get a lot of that in our industry don't you you know you take over practice and you try to make money um i mean you know as one aspect but how do you actually communicate that to patients so that they feel positive and confident to be able to move forward with you know more extensive treatments it's a really good question isn't it and i think it's a thing that dentists get themselves tied up in a knot about um a lot more so than the patients do i think that worry that patients are going to think that is what paralyzes dentists a lot and puts dentists into the habit of offering only lower fee dentistry or lower complicated that they presume and I firmly believe in presuming nothing um, I, I've had it proven time and time again in my life you shouldn't presume anything about anybody um, and I think the four years of working in London and becoming confident talking with a lot of patients on a daily basis albeit maybe not in the practice environment that I really wanted but the fact that I had that confidence of working in very busy practices for those four years um, definitely helped. And I have to say the practice that we took on, the patients were very, very welcoming. And also it was a huge thing that we had such a wonderful handover with the retiring dentist because yeah. he didn't want to do the crowns and the root canals. He didn't want to do any of that. And he was very much sort of almost queuing people up well listen when these guys take over you really need to have a chat with Sarah Jane or Ray about a proper plan for these teeth because I've just kept you going for the last year or two so that made it a really easy transition for us um, and when I was speaking with patients right from the very beginning I would always start off by saying look we're a different you know different dentist different age group different era of dentistry um, and Mr Dunleavy was a fantastic dentist absolutely ahead of his game and ahead of his time but you're now entering a new phase for your dental health and what I like to do with patients is always find out about what your aims are and what you want to I don't believe in doing um 
patch up dentistry um, unless that's what you truly want. You know, so let's talk about where you're at and where you want to get to over the next five to 10 years. And then I'll talk to you. We can talk together about options about how we can get you there. Um, so it definitely yeah. wasn't in and trying to sell five crowns in your first examination with your first patient. It certainly <laughs> wasn't that approach. You know, it was a, a but I, f I just find if you're honest with patients and you're upfront and you're not scared to talk to them about comprehensive dentistry as well as patch up options or simple and complicated options and you don't have any hang ups about that then the patients don't either at the end of the day they'll choose the option that suits them best but if you don't yeah. give them the options in the first place then you're doing them a disservice so actually the, you know, your, your advice there is so brilliant isn't it about actually dentists being their own worst enemy of actually you've just got to as you said i love that phrase presume nothing and and just get on with the job that you want to do uh, in a really honest and integral way which brings me nicely to my uh, another question that i've got for you which is um i know you've got you got a wonderful long-term associate called Paul, Dr. Paul O'Donnell, um, yeah. who is still with you in the practice today. Um, yeah. Again, I think dentists find it uh, quite tough sometimes to find an associate that has got the same mindset as them, that is going to add something to the business, that's going to be a really integral part of the wheel. What would your advice be about selecting associates to work alongside you? What do you look for? And perhaps what do you, what do you look for now in associates? Yeah, that's a, it's a really tricky one, actually. And the dentist that we took over from, um, he had tried an associate, I think, twice and just given up the ghost because he, in his own words, he just couldn't be doing with the hassle. Um, you know, and there is, there is that worry I think for on so many aspects for dentists taking on an associate um, and P Paul is incredible uh, he is absolutely the most lovely kind dentist fantastic with patients really productive financially really amazing relationships with his patients gets on fantastically with the team really just wonderful and we are, are very very lucky to have him and we have had other associates as well some of whom have worked out really well and some of whom just maybe not quite the right fit for us or us for them um, and I think the thing that I've learned over the years mostly is to firstly trust your intuition um, and secondly what you said there Michael is really important mindset and skill set are two different things and for me we really look for an associate or any team member but particularly a dental associate who's got a really similar mindset and a similar attitude. So somebody who really values comprehensive dentistry, who really values helping their patients and is absolutely ethical, hardworking and wants to do their very best and is friendly. But it's also really useful to have somebody who's got a different skill set. Because if you have two or three dentists in the same practice who are all lovely, but all do exactly the same kind of dentistry, you're not really bringing anything different to the table. Um, our dentists all have different skill sets and have different interests and um, areas where they one will lean more, that one will be maybe more into endo, one is more into implants, one is more into cosmetic dentistry. And so they offer a wide range of slightly differing skills, which is really useful, but they have dentists and hygienists. We all have a very similar outlook, a very similar sort of personality, patient care, communication, teamwork, being really ethical and doing the very, very best dentistry that you can. Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. And, you know, the words that you, you've also been using here, Sarah Jane, are the words comprehensive and comprehensive dentistry, which is something that, you know, I'm so passionate about, Michael's so passionate about, all three of us are really passionate about comprehensive yeah. dentistry. And the, it's there's so much that goes into providing that, isn't there? And Absolutely. I, 
to get to that point, you know, there's a lot of sweat, blood and tears from yourself and your husband, Ray, to, to actually get to be providing comprehensive dentistry. It's not easy. It's not something you do overnight. And would you mind sharing with the listeners what investments yourself and Ray have made to advance yourselves clinically? Because I know you've been over to America. Would you be able to share some information to advise? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's and I suppose everybody has a different path, you know, and, and for some people, the more um, sort of uh, structured, um, you know, masters and PhD level qualifications and taking time out from clinical practice and doing that full time. For some people, that's the right path. For us, definitely wasn't the path that we wanted because we both loved doing clinical dentistry. And we both wanted to work all the time and see patients and, you know, also from a business perspective to keep having that cash flow. But um, yeah, pretty much every year, I would say from when we qualified, we've been involved in doing um continuing education even before it was compulsory um, purely because it sharpens your skill set it expands your knowledge it lets you dabble and try things that you mightn't have the confidence to try otherwise and it gives you that confidence knowing that you have a really well-rounded and growing skill set because you don't cover everything in an undergraduate degree you just can't so um yeah so we've we've, we've done lots and lots of various things in-house and out of house we have um uh, both been in the states a few times we actually did a really interesting thing in the states which i'd recommend for um, anybody to expand their mind called the Productive Dentist Association or the Productive Dentist Academy with Bruce Baird uh, in Texas, which is firstly hilarious just to go to Texas because you feel like you're in an episode of Dallas and Dolly Parton's going to walk in any moment and they all work cowboy hats. But um, they are really passionate about uh, comprehensive dentistry and about ethically running um, um, practices that are financially freeing to their owners so that was really not a clinical course but something that was really useful um, we both did um, postgrad clinical diplomas in the dental hospital here when we returned from London Ray did a year in the Eastman uh, part-time doing endo uh, we also both did some implant courses with Spencer Wolf uh, we both did Tipton training um, with Paul Tipton which is really really great grounding in restorative for anybody who's taking on those more challenging clinical cases just from a, a nuts and bolts of the actual physics and mechanics of dentistry that's really really useful to get that in um, and there those courses are done both in Ireland and England um, and lot and then other things that we were just interested in um, personally so I would have done a lot of um, the business of dentistry um, end of things. Uh, Ray would have done more sort of clinical things, six months miles and adult ortho and um, implant courses, endo courses, all that kind of thing. But yeah, mm -hmm. constantly. And then in more recent years, we've been in the fortunate position where we have been able to bring people in-house for training, like your good selves, which have brought a huge amount of knowledge into the practice and so, so good to be able to bring um, people in who have got you know such a fantastic amount of knowledge and experience and especially if you can like you guys were so good to come over to our practice on more than one occasion to bring that amount of knowledge in and only have it for your team and have it bespoke custom made for the way you want your team to develop and to allow your team the joy to experience that kind of knowledge in-house for us that's a fantastic investment and it, it really pays dividends um, yeah. So, yeah, it's an ongoing process. And as uh, you know, we're, we're, we're always educating ourselves yeah. and expanding. And, and that's it. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? About, you know, continue to be inspired, actually. And um, I think people are going to be so inspired, you know, listening to you. I'm, I'm you know, so 
G'd up already. It's fantastic. And I want <laughs> you know, it's not all fun and games in dentistry. And I know um, we were talking about a particular time in your life, 2012, where you actually faced quite a large challenge, if you don't mind me, you know, saying uh, to our listeners that um, sure, no, not you, know, sure. you had a bit of a health problem, you know, with your back um, and, you know, was, which was interfering uh, with the way that you wanted to deliver clinical dentistry. And I think people have got a really good idea of where you've come from and how good you know you are in that role and how passionate you are and you made a decision to become the business manager in your practice which I think is a really brave decision to do because there'll be many dentists out there Sarah Jane that might feel physically or mentally that they just can't keep doing four to five days a week of dentistry and need to start cutting things down but don't really know what to do and you've become a business manager um how has that transition been for you and, and how does it make you feel and where 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 are you now? Yeah, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Because I think it's this is the same sort of moral dilemma or internal dilemma that a lot of people have about a lot of decisions, whether they're personal, whether they're professional or whether they're a mix of both, as mine was. Um, and sometimes we have this internal conversation that goes on and on for weeks and months or even years, you know, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a profession, whatever it is. And sometimes when you just bite the bullet and make the decision and move with the decision, take some steps and do something, never as bad as you think it's going to be. You know, I think sometimes the, the internal dilemma is the worst part of it. We really are our own worst enemies. So now having said that, of course, there are challenges. But um, yeah, for me, I suppose uh, around about 2011, 2012, since I'd had my first child and by this point I had a second one, um, my back had become worse and worse and worse. And I really was in a lot of pain doing my dental work um, as well as juggling kids and our team was getting a little bit bigger and the other pull that I had internally all the time was just this feeling that the practice is getting busier and bigger and we don't really have the underpinnings in place um, that would be a good foundation for that you know it, we are great dentists and we're doing a great job but we're being pulled in too many directions and things like staff training and systems um, and marketing and business management and compliance and all those things were pulling me especially in lots of different directions as well as the clinical dentistry and the bad back and it all basically just came to a conclusion one night I just sat down and I th thought so either we need to get a business manager and I need to maybe reduce my hours and kind of restructure how I'm working clinically or and I just stopped and I thought or or that I should be the business manager. That's the other option. And I can just rip the bandaid off and just stop doing clinical dentistry. And I'm not committed to that. I, I can always reverse that decision if it doesn't suit me. You know, you know, a dental degree is a dental degree. And as long as you keep up your CPD and keep up everything, there's nothing. It's not irreversible. So. No. So why not? So literally, I what would probably take some people a long time, I really made a very quick decision. Um, but I, I left myself the open ended um, answer that if this doesn't suit and if it's not if I'm not the right person for that role or if that role isn't right for me and I miss clinical dentistry too much. So what? I'll, I'll go back to working as a clinical dentist and I never have. And I have to say, I, I <laughs> depending on the challenges of the week, some weeks I do regret it and I think teeth really are a hell of a lot simpler. But usually, <laughs> I, usually I look back and I, I think I made the right decision for the practice and for myself. So, um, yes, yeah, so that's that. that Can was I ask really you a, a very personal question, maybe, Sarah Jane, that maybe listeners will be interested <laughs> in, is 
Financially, a transition from a dentist to a business manager, did you have to really alter what you paid yourself over that period of time? And do you think, you know, was that a good decision? Do you think do you think actually people can do that and still make a really good living out of being a an effective business manager and an owner of their business in that role and having, you know, dentists work for them effectively? certainly is possible. You certainly have to have a very, very different head on your shoulders and approach it in a very different way. But that actually brings up a really good point, which is there are so many dentists out there and I count a lot of my friends amongst them who are amazing dentists um, who have amazing clinical skills, brilliant relationships with their team and fantastic relationships with their patients. But they really don't have a business. They have a job that they can't stop. They fear going on leave because they're not getting paid. And when they're not getting paid, how do they pay their team? How do they pay the overhead? They nearly resent taking holidays or fear taking holidays. And the reason for that is because they don't have a business. And I don't know how it is in the UK, but certainly when I was being trained, there was absolutely no business education of any sort. And there was this sort of underlying thought that it was maybe a bit unethical to teach dentistry, to teach business in dentistry, in dental college. And to me, it's actually completely the opposite, because if you have a dentist who doesn't know how to run a business and doesn't know how to make things work profitably, you're more likely to end up with a dentist who's under financial stress, who maybe will make unethical decisions as a result. If you've got a business process in place where you're only a part of the of the cogs within that machine, you're not the entire machine, then you have a business. If you're the entire machine, you don't have a business. You just have have, we've said this before together. You you have a a job with a boss who is absolutely crazy and you're the crazy boss and you can't take time off your work and you're not paying yourself as much as you should be. So it really requires a completely different mindset. It absolutely can be done, but you need to absolutely sit down and look at your business, look at the structure of your business, look at who's doing what and how the finances of the business work um, mm-hmm. and really everybody should be doing that whether whether they're a single man show or whether they're a team of two or four or five or six because nobody knows what could happen next week next month next year you know it could be an injury it could be a personal decision it could be who knows what it, there's so many things that could happen so if 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 you want to have the the benefits and the security of a business as opposed to just being a self-employed maniac then you need to really look at the nuts and bolts of your practice and your income no matter how many of you are on the team and see what it is behind the curtains in terms of the cash flow the profit margins all of that stuff Um, and then you can make a decision and I suppose for us it was a little bit uh, easier in that there was two of us and only one of us was stepping into a non-clinical role but I would look at it the same if it was a practice that I was running myself Um, you have to really look at every aspect and it absolutely can be done and it doesn't matter whether you're NHS private medical card mixed whatever it is the nuts and bolts are still the same. Yeah, you're right. You've got to run it as a business. And I think that's come really clearly out of your answer that actually, you know, you it is either you're self-employed and you're just doing a job and you happen to have a practice or you actually run a business and it's two totally different avenues to go down. And it's a, it's a choice that people need to make and feel comfortable with, isn't it? So that's fantastic. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, yeah. And I think, you know, 
something else I'm just picking out on things that you've said here, Sarah Jane. I just want to ask a sort of question linking on is about the stress and pressure of feeling that you can't have time off and that you can't have um you know unpaid leave because you know well leave because you're not going to get paid and that work-life balance is such a huge problem for practice owners without a doubt it's one of the number one things that we we support our clients most of our clients with they, that's what one of their goals is i need a work-life balance and your work-life balance is is good now isn't it it's in a really good place have you got any tips you could share and i think in particular one thing if you don't mind me asking um, because we work with a lot of husband and wife teams and then you've got children and then it's like, well, how do we have holidays and how are we going to make this work? Because the practice can't be left unattended. So within all of that, I've just asked you probably about three questions in one there. <laughs> what, what are your tips for work life balance? You know, I know you take regular holidays. You know, what what sort of insights can you share with everyone? And can you share how yourself and Ray work your holidays with your children so it works for all of you as well? Would that be all right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I suppose the short answer to your question really is you have to just make the decision. That's the first thing, because I think a lot of people don't make the decision. They don't because we're so busy and particularly in a, the role of clinical dentistry, especially if you're a practice owner, you're pulled in so many directions. You're trying to help the team. You're trying to help your patients. You're trying to do clinical dentistry to actually sit down and to think to yourself, what do I want from my life? That's the first thing. So many people don't do that. And because they don't do that, they then can never put a plan in place or they maybe start the process and go, oh, well, sure, this is a ridiculous thing because I'd love to have eight weeks, but I can't have eight weeks because I can't even have four weeks. I can't have four weeks. And they get down this rabbit hole of reasons they can't have what they want. But yeah. unless you sit down with a pen and paper and say, what do I want? I want this income. I want this lifestyle. I want this amount of weeks. You need to start with maybe a realistic ideal lifestyle okay we're not going to have 28 weeks of leave in the year but it's certainly absolutely realistic for anybody delivering clinical dentistry to have a minimum of four weeks ideally six eight ten weeks of leave um mm -hmm. because of the amount of pressure that you're under and to keep the saw sharpened um and some people might think that that's unrealistic um but it's not and it is doable if you sit down but if you don't sit down and make that decision and look at well if i was going to do that how much do I want to earn? Over how many hours do I want to earn that? What are the non-clinical things that I need to do as well in my day? Where do I fit those in? It really is sitting sitting down and making that decision. That's the first step. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, as regards um, uh, how to balance the husband-wife thing and, and leave and all that, it really is a challenge, <laughs> especially when kids are thrown into the mix. I completely empathise with everybody. And we've done things completely the wrong way as well for the first few years. We, when we started, uh, we took one week's holiday each that year. I took a week in Holland and Ray took a week in Spain or somewhere, got stranded with no credit cards. Completely separate weeks, you know, it was, and it was an absolute disaster. And, it, you know, it really wasn't worthwhile. But you you find out what you don't like and it should then guide you into what you do want. Um, and then it's up to you to make the decision. And there is a solution for everything. I firmly believe that. So I am. Um, Everybody at our practice, almost without exception, works four day a four day week. Um, that works really well for us nurses, hygienists, dentists. Um, we all take a minimum of four to six weeks leave. Um, we stagger our leave because that works for us. There's enough of, enough of us to keep open uh, 51 weeks of the year. We all close for Christmas week, um, which means everybody's off that week. But um, and we schedule our holidays in advance and we work out the finances 
of the leave, both for the practice as a whole and for the individuals who are going to be on leave as far in advance as possible. Um, and, and you have to see your leave as part of the way that you can continue to be productive and be a good dentist and not burn out and enjoy your work, whether it's clinical or non-clinical. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, everything you're saying is just music to my ears. And I'm sure everyone listening is absolutely loving this. But there's another really important part of your business that you've developed. And I know Michael's desperate to ask you. So, Michael, I'll let, I'll let you ask Sarah Jane. OK, so it's about systems, really. Um, oh, we're yes. very passionate about systems, as you know. And yeah. you've put over the last five years, you've developed so many practice systems so that you know, in line with what you've just said, you're very comfortable now to take holidays and to not have the phone ring and not have the emails pinging all the time. So what was your investment in systems? How long did you take to do systems? And, you know, what do you think the advantages are? Um, they are the absolute lifeblood of my practice and of my business and I couldn't be without them and the lack of systems really is the thing that drives so many people to burnout and frustration um, and, I, and it's not an easy journey because the investment of time to get the systems in place and trained and developed is a time suck initially but it's like spinning plates. Once you've got those plates spinning, you can then leave and the plates will continue to spin in your absence. And that really is the thing, is to get your head around the fact that even getting a few simple systems in place initially, whether it's um, leave or whether it's uh, how to handle patient emergencies when the practice is closed or whatever those things are, those big headaches that cause you problems, to take an hour, a couple of hours and get that system drawn up, get your team trained and then follow up. That's the really big thing. Get it followed up and make sure that it's being implemented, make sure that it's understood. Um, to do that then starts to move you from being the entire machine who's got to move every single cog, make every single decision, do every single thing all the time. It moves you into the position of being a business owner with a business with systems that functions. Um, because if you look at any other form of business outside of dentistry, even within healthcare, if you look at any um, company looking at purchasing another company and looking at their value, they don't want to see a business that's dependent on a personality. They want mm -hmm. to see a brand that runs on systems independent of that personality. Um, and people will say, you know, look at Richard Branson and things like that. But he, he is successful. He's entrepreneurial. But all of his businesses work without him being present on a daily basis. Jamie Oliver's restaurants work without him being in the kitchen on a daily basis. Um, it's not the personality that might be part of the branding and part of the business, but it's not the core. And once you have systems in place that work independently of you, you no longer have to be there to answer every email, to answer every phone call, to fix every problem. Um, and it's an ongoing process. You know, I've been working with systems of the practice for probably 14, 15 years now, and we're still adding systems on. Um, mm. And, and we're, we tweak things and we review things and we look back and we think, you know, actually, let's let's have a look at this one and see how we can improve it. Um, it's an ongoing process. It's an ongoing investment in time. And it's as your team gets bigger, it's a big investment in training. But it is so worth it because oh. when you when you hear two team members, maybe a newer team member talking to an experienced team member and they're talking about this is how we do things. And we do things this way because at our practice, we do things 
in a manner that's reproducible and reliable because then I know you do it the same as me and you know I do it the same as you and you hear that and you know you don't even have to be there for that conversation and that the, the standards are kept exactly as you want them whether you're there or not that is just absolute bliss you know to know that you're in West Cork or you're in France or you're wherever and the systems are being followed in your absence it's that's what the frustration is for so many dentists that's the the absence of those systems is what's driving them crazy it's a great feeling isn't it when you know your business is systemized and I think the things to take out from what Sarah Jones just said there it's not just about creating a system it's the training on the system it's the following up it's the reviewing it's the tweaking you've it's a constant work in progress isn't it system development but it should be a huge priority in your business if you want your business to be successful. And I think if, if it's the case that you're a dentist and you haven't got the time, um, you need to have somebody on your team that is in sync with you and that knows what exactly what you want to develop those systems for you. And even if you go down that road and you have a business manager or a practice manager who does that for you, you still need to be behind the systems because the team will smell it a mile away if the practice owner isn't fully on board. You know, yeah. if it's just a, a book that's written with some fancy logo at the front that sits in somebody's desk, that's not a system. That's just a dust gatherer. Um, yeah. it, you know, everybody needs to breathe them and uh, live them and, and stand by them. And um, and that's the only way it works. Otherwise, you know, you can't pay a consulting firm somewhere in some office in London to produce a book and post it out to you. It doesn't work that way. No. does not. Absolutely not. And it's really interesting, actually, I'll just very quickly add this in, the amount of times that, you know, we support practices with creating systems for the practice, but the amount of times we're asked to, can't you just give us a manual for everything? When I know yeah. you've yeah. got to create the systems for your business. We've got to train the team on the systems for your business. You've, you've really hit the nail on the head there. It is about your business, isn't it? And your team. It's not a manual. We're not a franchise. Absolutely. No. And, you know, it's, it can be really useful if you have a, a friend or a, a colleague that has systems in place to look at them as a template or as a springboard or what other practices have done. And I know certainly from going through systems with you guys, we've learned a lot from how you structure things. And it gives great ideas of how to um, structure and train and, and implement. But it, if it's going to work, it has to be bespoke to your practice and to your your way of doing things and your vision for your team and how you you want your business to run whether you're there or not it has to be personally for you for you absolutely wise words from sarah jane now sarah jane i'm going to move us on because um, we're running out of time and i just want to i mean you've given so many fascinating insights and so many top tips but i just want to ask you a few more sort of quick fire questions um, for you to share some more top tips with our listeners if that's okay with you yeah fire so, away I think the first question I'd like to ask what are your top tips for um, dentists who want to change their business you know by either expanding or perhaps enhancing their experience or maybe wanting to do more of the treatments that they love what are your top tips for dentists in those situations um, well, definitely the first one we have already touched on, which is presume nothing. Um, you know, dentists who want to do expanded treatment options, first of all, you don't just wake up in the morning having done five years of scale and polish and fillings and decide to do a full mouth rehab. Or if you do, you're foolhardy, to say the least. Um, you need to have the experience and the additional um, training behind you 
to give you the right skill set. So, so definitely invest in your clinical skills if you want to expand your clinical offering. So, um, you know, whether it's doing things like Tipton training or whether it's doing more sort of formal um, um, restorative work or whatever it is that you feel you want to do more of, make sure you have the skill set. And if you don't have the skill set, invest some time, invest some money in the best trainers and get that behind you, get that, get that into your toolbox. And then, offer it to your patients. It sounds stupid, it sounds basic, but dentists don't always offer all the options to their patients. They presume they'll want the cheapest, they'll presume that they'll want the quick fix, they'll presume all of these things, which aren't at all true. Our patients are exactly like we are. We mm. don't want to be ripped off, we don't want to, but we don't necessarily want the cheapest option. M most of us are happy to invest, whether it's a holiday, a car, a kitchen, whatever the shoes that we're wearing most of us are happy to invest as long as we feel we're getting value and that's mm -hmm. the thing then I think a lot of dentists make a presumption that patients will only want to hear about the quickest cheapest thing and they paint themselves into this corner of only option only offering quick fix options which not only are no good to the dentist and this is the key they are a disservice to the patients if you're only offering single visit dentistry where more comprehensive dentistry would stand them better. That's not to say every patient needs crowns, of course they don't. But if you have patients with four and five surface amalgams that are fracturing all over the place and they've no occlusion and they're dysfunctional and their teeth are fracturing, it's a disservice not to be able to at least offer them the options of stabilizing that situation for them. Um, and just always offer. It's a simple habit. If dentists just could get themselves into the mindset of every time they're talking to a patient, every time they've taken the time to do an in-depth clinical examination, to present what they see and to discuss two or three different approaches. We could do it this way, we could do it that way, or we could go the more comprehensive route. What's your feeling? And listen to the patient's feedback, but just always offer. Absolutely. Don't offer and it's never going to happen. Wonderful answer. And uh, if I could bottle that, uh, yeah. now we're on a podcast, we're going to be like, right then, what you need to do is listen to Dr. Sarah Jane. Uh, <laughs> time and listen to that two minutes and that is your inspiration for moving forward. We've got one <laughs> last top tips. I know this is a, a question that a lot of dentists have, which is, you know, We've got a lot of young dentists now that are looking at buying a practice, maybe are wondering whether they should or they shouldn't. Um, what would be your top tips for people that might want to buy a practice now? Yeah, it's an interesting time, isn't it? You know, um, and practices are getting busier and, and values of practices are soaring and it becomes an ever increasing investment for a young dentist or maybe young partners to take on existing practices. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it is an interesting time. And I think there are a huge amount of options out there for young dentists. There are so many options now that really nobody should feel pigeonholed into having to go down a certain road. There are amazing associate jobs. And I do feel actually for a lot of dentists, um, maybe running a practice and owning a practice might not be the best option. There really are fantastic associate roles, which for particular dentists who love clinical dentistry and just want to do clinical dentistry and go home at six o'clock, an associate role can be a wonderful option in the right practice running a practice, owning a practice is a different ball game altogether. Um, and if so, again, the first thing is to just sit down, go to your local coffee shop, go for a walk in the woods, whatever floats your boat. What do I want? Get clarity on that, first of all. Do you want a team of 20 people who need to be taken care of and who need to have their needs 
met or do you want a quieter life do you want to concentrate in clinical dentistry or do you want to have the other pulls and challenges and enjoyment of compliance and team training and recruitment and systems and all of those other things what is it that you want but don't go into a, a, a route of purchasing a practice just because that's what everybody else in the year that you qualified is doing that's not a good reason to do it and you can end up in a sticky situation but if you feel that a practice is right for me and I want to be a practice owner and I want all of the challenges and fun that that brings then the next decision is do I want to take over an existing practice or do I want to start from scratch because they're two completely different avenues if you want to start from scratch you will have it exactly how you want it but it will likely be a much slower start if you want to take over an existing practice, you do have the benefits of the cash flow and the existing patient base if you have a good relationship with the departing dentist, but you also have a much, much bigger investment. So you need to be really sure that you're getting the practice you think you're getting and you're getting the patient base that you think you're getting. Um, good, goodwill is a very intangible thing and you really a good relationship with the departing dentist is really important. So I think just taking your time and deciding clearly what you want before you start viewing practices and looking at EBITDAs and turnovers and profit margins and all that kind of fine detail. That's really the most important tip, I would think. Oh, Sarah Jane, absolutely fantastic. You are a superstar. You are. <laughs> Definitely not, but thank you for the compliment. <laughs> what can everyone take away from listening to today's podcast? I think, firstly, what really stands out is your passion. You may have moved into a non-clinical role, but you are so passionate about dentistry and that is so clear. I know Michael and I both know you to know that, but I still think that comes across really strongly. And I think everyone you know, should really be taking that from you today. And I want to thank you for that. Um, I think the other things, no, honestly, thank you so much. I think the other things that, you know, we can really take away from listening to you. We started off talking about the investments that yourself and Ray have made in your clinical careers and how you have chosen the courses that are right for you. And I think the other thing to take away from today was many things, but it's also this concept that you have of making sure you're doing the right thing. And to me, there's that lovely book, isn't there, called The Book of Why or Why, something like that. Um, and the why is always the most yeah. important question to have answered. And I think to me, from listening to you today, your why is always so clear and that helps you to move through. Even when you've got these tough times where, you, you know, you, you've got health problems and you're needing to move into a different role, your why for your business has still been really clear. Um, I absolutely love, we've all got to take this forward now, presume nothing. It's it's just <laughs> absolutely wonderful top tip. And I think the last thing just to to summarise really from, from my perspective that Sarah Jane said, to all the practice owners listening, what Sarah Jane has said is that you are running a business and you're either, you know, self-employed dentist and you're not running a business or you are running a business. And that's a really important decision that your practice, you do need to realise that and to look at it as a business for it to be everything that you want it to be, for it to give you that work-life balance that Sarah Jane and, and Ray have achieved. You know, I think it's absolutely fantastic. There's no taking away from for either of you the, the tough times or any of the hard work that you've put into this. But I think your your story to date, your 20 year story, 
is a true inspiration and I'd like like to thank you ever so much for taking your time to talk to all of us today so yeah, much, and I, I, I would say, you know, you're only the sum of your teachers, and I am very fortunate to count both of you as two of my teachers, and you've brought a wealth of um, experience and knowledge to our team as well. So thank you both, and thank you for having me today. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Sarah Jane. And uh, if you haven't already, please do subscribe to our podcast. We have our monthly hangout where Michael and I answer questions, and then we have our monthly guests moving forward as well. Uh, please check out the websites, which will be shortly updated with some fantastic new speak, uh, new guests that we're going to have. So thank you all so much for your time today, and um, keep listening. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please subscribe so you can be notified of our next episode.